0: On behalf of Dreamers Empire, we'd like to welcome you to the Recapturing the Future podcast. From computer-driven cars to monorails, from smart houses to floating cities, from spaceports to interstellar travel, in the spirit of the innovative and forward-thinking concepts of the great world's fairs and Walt Disney's experimental prototype community of tomorrow, we cover the technology and exciting concepts of future living. So join us today as we recapture the future. One of the sponsors of the Recapturing the Future podcast is forum software Fusion BB. Fusion BB developers packed Fusion BB with features for both site owners and users to make your community a success right out of the box. Visit us at FusionBB.com.
1: Epcot Park at Walt Disney World hosts over 10 million visitors each year. It is the favorite theme park for many and the heart of Walt's plans for Walt Disney World. Epcot is a pristine park that boasts great attractions like Soarin', Test Track and the Illumination Show every night at 9 o'clock. But the Epcot we have come to love and enjoy is nothing like the Epcot
2: Walt planned. most exciting, the far the most important part of our Florida project. In fact, the heart of everything we'll be doing in Disney World will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. We call it Epcot.
1: Today we begin a three-part series on Epcot where we'll look at the original Epcot that Walt designed in the early 60s and talk to Chad Emerson, author of Project Future, an in-depth look at the Florida land acquisition. Next episode we'll look at the Epcot that opened in 1982 and the style it retained into the 90s, and then finally we'll look at Epcot Today and contrast it with Walt's original design. Bob, we'll probably find ourselves repeating how much we truly love Epcot as it is. It's our favorite park hands down, but I know that many of us would like to have seen the Epcot that Walt envisioned. Let's talk a little bit about how his design was different. Um, First, it was going to be a city, wasn't it?
0: Uh, Yeah, Epcot was going to be a city, a real functioning city with roughly 20,000 people living and contributing to innovations for the future. Uh, The Epcot city itself, according to the concepts presented in the Epcot film, was based on a very innovative but simple design, the radial concept based on a concept similar to the layout of the Disneyland Park. The city radiates out like a wheel from a central core. The population density of the area would dwindle as the city fanned out as people moved from the central city out to the suburbs uh, that ringed uh, Epcot, the central core city.
1: Yeah, I think it's safe to say that we're, we're really not uh, familiar with any city that that's taken on that design. So, but if you've been to Walt Disney World, you're no, no doubt familiar with the monorails and the people mover found at Magic Kingdom. Uh, But these were to be integral parts of the plan Walt originally had for Walt Disney World. Um, How did these modes of transportation come into play for those plans?
0: Well, the uh, city would be connected to the other points of Disney World with the main line of transportation, the monorail. Walt Disney introduced the monorail in Disneyland in 1959. The monorail would cut through the center of the city connecting Epcot with the northern and southern points on the Disney World property. Internal transportation would be provided by a whole new Disney transportation concept, the Wedway People Mover. Now uh, interestingly, the People Mover is uh, the segment we had in the very first podcast. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was going to be an integral, integral part of Epcot the city. The People Mover is a transportation system that never stops, relying on motors embedded in the track rather than on vehicles. People Mover cars would transport residents from the Metropolitan Center to the outer residential areas. The PeopleMover concept was first demonstrated at Disneyland's Tomorrowland in 1967. People PeopleMover was also installed at the Magic Kingdom. It's now called the Tomorrowland Transit Authority, but interestingly enough, it's just been renamed the PeopleMover mm-hmm. again, kind of catching some of that nostalgia uh, of when the, uh, the system was first uh, installed. Because of these two modes of transportation, residents of Epcot would not need a car. If they did, it would only be used for weekend pleasure trips. The streets for cars would be kept separate from the main pedestrian areas the main roads for both cars and supply trucks would travel underneath the city core eliminating the risk of pedestrian accidents this was also based on the concept that walt disney devised for disneyland he did not want his guests to see behind the scenes activity such as supply trucks delivering goods to the city like the magic kingdom in walt disney world all supplies are discreetly delivered via underground tunnels now the two systems the monorail and the people mover would come together at the epcot transportation lobby the transportation lobby would be located at the ground level above busy automobile truck roads from the lobby a passenger riding the monorail from the magic kingdom park to their home would disembark the monorail and transfer to the appropriate people mover station
1: i i don't know about you but to me that sounds like the most exciting place within waltz design you know it's it's almost like when you're at Disney now and, and you're feeling the excitement of, of getting somewhere. I, I just picture this um, multi level building where you're hopping off a monorail, you're you're zooming down an escalator so you can get on the people mover. Don't don't you think that would be like one of the funnest parts of the new design of that design?
0: Yeah, I think that's what intrigued us the most, uh, when we took our first trip down to the uh, Walt Disney World theme park was just the how intricate uh, the the whole park system was put together it wasn't so much all the attractions that we got to see but it was just uh, i think we marveled at how much thought and foresight went into the design and especially like like we said the the transportation design of that whole theme park
1: yeah that was beautiful i think i think that was really for me that's the 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 place that the design of epcot walt had that i i was the most excited there are some Um, of those drawings that you can see at the original Epcot website and we'll try to post some of those to uh, Dreamers Empire Uh, but as we stated earlier uh, Epcot was going to be a real city something more than just a theme park Um, what what was that city gonna look like?
0: Uh, Well Epcot's downtown and commercial areas would have been located in the central core of the city away from the residential areas the entire area would have been completely enclosed unaffected by the outside elements As Walt used to say, the pedestrian will be king in this area, free from the danger of cars and other vehicles. At the center of the city would be a 30-story cosmopolitan hotel and convention center. This building was to have been the tallest building in Epcot and could have been seen for miles. Like the Matterhorn bobsleds at Disneyland, the parking lot for hotel guests would have been located underneath the city core, right off the vehicle throughway. On the roof of the enclosed area would be the recreational area for hotel guests. The pool, tennis courts, basketball courts, shuffleboard, and other activities would have been located there. According to Imagineer Bob Gurr, Walt Disney pointed to one of the benches in the scale model of the area and declared, this is where Lily, his wife, and I will sit when this thing is finished, taking everything in. That's neat that he said that they would just be there kind of basking in uh, in what they built. And I think uh, when we, actually when we've gone to the theme parks, we do a little bit of the same thing.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: At, at our age, we're, we're getting more and more in tune with those things and, and less in tune of trying to get it in every ride that we want. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and so, so today we're, we're just going to hit on those um, aspects of the original Epcot and uh, in the future we'll talk more about the shopping center that was planned, um, the high re- density residential area. And uh, the green belt and the low density residential area, as you explained, and the way that the radial design fans from the busier in- inside metropolis to the outside. And we'll talk about how living and employment was going to be integrated into Epcot. If you're interested in seeing the original plans for um, Epcot, you can actually see it somewhere hidden within Walt Disney World. Catch not you, Bob?
0: Yeah, actually, you can still catch a glimpse of the Progress City model at Walt Disney World by taking the People Mover. It's one of the sections of the People Mover ride, but you do have to look quickly because it doesn't stop allowing you to uh, examine any of the features of the model, so it just kind of quickly goes by, so you got to really keep your eyes peeled for it. I've always gotten the sense that that
1: scale model, I mean, it's, it's, it's good. It just, does it seem like it's as big and as wonderful as some of these photos we've seen i've never i've never been really sure on that
0: well i think uh, part of the reason why is they're they're really the the view of the model itself was closer to the central city core so really what you see is you see the city in this in the center and then uh one of the belts that is surrounding the city which is kind of a recreation area so you don't really see the high density and the uh, the suburb- suburban area of the city in that model.
1: Mm, oh, okay. So you just have to wonder too, if if they had gone through with the original plans, would that have have had a big impact on other cities that you know have grown since then? Yeah, you know,
0: one of the things that's neat uh, about that model is they do show the uh, Wedway People Mover lines that uh, that go out in the radial uh, from the center, and so that's that's kind of neat looking. You can see where they come. Uh, out from the uh, transportation lobby and then fan out to what would eventually be the neighborhoods, which you don't actually see in the model, but you can get an idea of what that might look like. You know, when uh, Walt Disney was looking at building uh, Epcot the city, uh, what I think is neat is he didn't focus as much on what kind of social structure would work in that kind of urban or suburban setting. Really, he looked at what kind of systems and transportation uh, modes would work well to efficiently get people from uh, the, the city uh, central core uh, out to their neighborhoods and back again. So really, his whole focus was on uh, how how he could do that efficiently, as opposed to what kind of socioeconomic structure would be needed to support that. Because frankly, uh, those kind of questions are just too hard. I think you have too much disagreement. But uh, for the area that Walt focused on, I think uh, he could get a lot of agreement in that area.
2: Now, here is Walt Disney. Welcome to a little bit of Florida here in California. This is where the early planning is taking place for our so-called Disney World project. Now, the purpose of this film is to bring you up to date about some of the plans for Disney World. But before I go into any of the details, I want to say just a word about the site of our Florida project. As you can see on this map, we have a perfect location in Florida, almost in the very center of the state. In fact, we selected this site because it's so easy for tourists and Florida residents to get here by automobile. Now, in larger scale on this map, our Florida land is located partly in Orange County and Osceola County, between the cities of Orlando and Kissimmee. And the important thing is that the Disney World is located just a few miles from the crossing point of Interstate 4 and Sunshine State Parkway. Florida's major highways carrying motors east and west and north and south to the center of the state.
1: This is our second Dreamers Moment segment, where we interview entrepreneurs, inventors, idea folks, people who've entered the arena and have experienced the joys and challenges of chasing a dream. Today we're privileged to have Chad Emerson, author of Project Future, the inside story behind the creation of Disney World. And we'll also be talking about one of Chad's heroes, Roy Disney, and how Walt's older brother had to carry on the challenges of the Florida Project after Walt's untimely death. Chad, welcome to the show.
4: Hi, thanks for having me, Dean. I'm glad to be here.
1: Well, thanks for coming, and uh, right from the get-go, I'm thinking to take on the research alone behind Project Future involved a lot of work trying to gather all the details behind the the Florida land acquisition by the Walt Disney Company. So I'm guessing you already had a pretty big interest in Disney World before you started the project. When did you first become interested in Walt Disney?
4: Well, when I was... a uh... Early on, in the early 80s, my family, we took a trip down there when Epcot first opened, but when I got married in 1998, my wife and I, one of our first vacations was down to Walt Disney World. Hmm. She had never been. This is my only second trip. I didn't really remember much since 1983 or 84, so went down there, just really fell in love. We didn't have kids at the time. just fell in love with just everything it stood for. So over the years, you know, I started to get involved with uh, different projects down there, had some When I was practicing law, just fortuitously had some depositions down there. Okay. And got to spend the evenings in the park. Next thing I know, I was writing for magazines and uh, books. And, you know, here we are uh, about, I guess, 14 years later. Um, It's been a great journey in a lot of ways.
1: How many times do you figure you've been there?
4: Oh, since 98, 99, probably 30 or 40 by now. I mean, maybe 50, It, it, for a while there, it, when you're doing uh, press stuff, it'll just be in pop-in for a couple hours, stuff like that. So, actual right. family vacation, you know, probably 15 or so, maybe once a year over that time. But actually, trips there, I usually find myself there every three or four months.
1: Oh, okay. Well, so you must get a season pass.
4: Uh, well, nice thing about writing uh, for the magazine is typically when I'm there, it's for an event of some type, so... Uh, Usually, uh, your your admission is part of the event.
1: Oh, okay. Um, care to share like your favorite theme park or maybe your favorite attraction?
4: Well, Epcot is my favorite theme park hands down.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: It's just uh, I don't know I don't know why because I love them all. But there's something about when you walk in that front entrance of Epcot and hear that mesmerizing music and, <laughs> and if they just get rid of those tombstones, it would be all right. But uh, and you, and you see now the. the Restored, glorious spaceship Earth, about you know some you know, character stuff on it, and you just wander through there, and there is light, airy stuff. There's fun stuff. There's also some pretty serious stuff where you just really contemplate some of the theme of American adventure, or have just a, a real loose, non-contemplative time at uh, you know, Nemo and the Seas, or mm. something like that. So that's I think that park has just about everything you could want wrapped up into a single park.
1: Uh, no argument here my favorite I always say my favorite few minutes is when you get off the monorail at Epcot and you've mm-hmm. just kind of swung through the future world park and then you've you're, you're hearing the music you're walking up to Spaceship Earth that that definitely is the ideal moment for me
4: that is uh, well, I think the monorail trip from the TTC to Epcot where you wind through the park and kind of get that preview as you uh, come back to the station, that's about as fun as it gets (laughs) for in terms
1: of Disney. Yeah, agreed. I'm hoping someday when I retire, I can just be working on that monorail station right there.
4: That'd be a great job.
1: (laughs) Um, Until I had read Project Future, I guess I had the average understanding of how Walt was secretly buying up land in Central Florida for the Walt Disney World Resort. Um, how did you personally get interested in this project?
4: I teach law school in Montgomery, Alabama, and one of my areas of research involved legal issues facing the amusement and leisure industry. Hmm. Looked at a lot of different things, and one of the things I came across was improvement districts. And I was kind of a hybrid, as I also teach property law and land planning and development. And I thought, well, wow, improvement districts. And I started researching and I saw that one of the, if not the most famous improvement district in the history of the country uh, was the Reedy Creek Improvement
3: District, mm,
1: yep. which
4: is basically the regulatory backbone of the Walt Disney World Resort, and as I was doing this research and writing this article, my wife and several others were looking it over and they said, you know, you take out this legalese, you take out you know, all this legal jargon and turn it into a book. This is some really amazing stories. So we published it as a law review. Florida State published it several years back, and then I transformed it and expanded it into the book, which is now known as Project Future. Which, you know, I, I, I don't hesitate to tell people it is about the details of how you how they created the nuts and bolts of Disney World. There are a lot of great books about trivia and other things out there that I enjoy reading. But if you if you're looking for a lighter experience, this is not necessarily one of those. We try to put this chock full of all the details so when you come out of it, you're going to know the details. And, you know, some people have said it's too much detail, but I think there's a lot of people out there who, who want to go to that next level, that next layer of depth. So it's been extremely, um, well received and we've been real pleased with the reviews and the return sales.
1: I think what, what it did for me was it just made me realize as a as an entrepreneur myself and somebody who'd like to chase a dream why you shouldn't give up. And, and boy, you talk about challenges, and and I'll ask a few questions about that. But today it, seemed, it hardly seems that the Walt Disney World Resort could be located anywhere other than Central Florida, but that wasn't the only place that they were looking into for, for an eastern market what other locations were being researched, and why didn't they pan out?
4: They, uh, early on, they realized Disneyland was a huge success, but that so much of its attendance was coming from people west of the Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And so Walt and his team realized we needed to tap into the eastern market to maximize the number of guests. And so they started looking at a lot of different areas as far west as St. Louis, Walt obviously had a strong connection to the state of Missouri, growing up in Marceline and spending time in Kansas City. But that project fell apart. They looked at some projects up near where the World's Fair site was that they participated in, uh, as a lot of people know. But again, the same problem was it was cold during the winter, and it wasn't a, a great location. And finally, they really narrowed themselves down to the state of Florida. That was one of the few places in the eastern U.S. where they felt like it was warm enough year-round to operate an outdoor park. Within Florida, though, it was never a slam dunk. That'd be Orlando. In fact, early on, the Palm Beach area Mm -hmm. and Ocala, Florida, especially those two, were leaders out of the gate, if you want to say. Mm -hmm. And if it weren't for the fact, ultimately, Dean, that Interstate 4, which at the time did not exist in in the early 1960s, was built to connect I-75 and I-95, and then the Florida Turnpike was extended from I-95 to I-75. Both of those literally, as people know now, cross through Orlando, almost making an X. It's When Disney learned about those soon-to-be-constructed rows, X marked the spot in central Florida, and that spot was the Orlando area.
1: Yeah. Uh, dealing with the complexities of, of, uh, of the, the kinds of land that they were looking at and, and uh, the highways and, and, and what kind of funding would they get from the state, that just uh, kind of blew me away. Um, one thing that confused me uh, that um, I, I don't really understand was, weren't they um, in talks with the St. Louis location, but at the same time they were buying up land in Florida?
4: Yeah, I think early on, it was never an either-or. I think Walt was casting a wide net for different ideas, and the St. Louis project actually came to him, whereas to a large degree, Project Future, they went to Florida and sought it out.
3: Mm -hmm.
4: Uh, The St. Louis city fathers and civic officials came asking Walt, And the St. Louis project, Riverfront Square, was conceived of as a extremely large, but nevertheless entirely indoor, multi-story, five or six stories, kind of like a huge Disney quest, if you will. Right. And uh, the idea was that that would be an opportunity to create some of these attractions in an indoor setting as part of the revitalization that were creating the Gateway Arch and the original Bush Stadium for the St. Louis Cardinals. So... They were looking at that project. They were also looking at some of the smaller projects in Niagara, for example, at the Mm -hmm. Seagram's Tower and several other places. So I don't think Walt was saying at this point, we're only going to do one. But I think with the World's Fair work, they soon realized that their capacity to do a whole bunch of different projects at once was going to be really straining the resources of the company and Mm. continue to do films and TV and all that. And so that's when uh, the St. Louis project really got the closest itself through for a variety of reasons. I think, based on my research, one of the reasons is that the Disney company realized it's going to be hard to build this and do the Florida project at the same time. And I think the Florida project soon became a priority.
1: Okay. I can imagine knowing, knowing what I do about Roy Disney, he must have been having um, sleepless nights during that time.
4: Roy Disney. Uh, When it's called Disney World, I've said before in some interviews and things like that, if we really wanted to be fair and true to uh, Disney World and what it represents, it should be called Walt and Roy Disney World (laughs) Resort. Because while Walt had the vision for it, when Walt passed in 1966, it easily could have, Disney could have easily closed up shop. Oh, yeah. And walked away. But. Roy insisted that his brother's vision was going to get built, and it weren't for Roy. And there were other great people involved, but it weren't for Roy saying this is going to be built. It I don't think it would have got built, and I think that's why Roy, his name, uh, should be just as tied to that resort as, as his brother's.
1: And he, and he was really the one who suggested that it be named Walt Disney World. Am I right on that?
4: Yeah, that's interesting. It was It was Disney World, and then just before opening... It was officially, in fact, Disney World, for a while there was one word like Disneyland, so it was a lowercase w following Mm. the y at Disney, so it read Disney World just like Disneyland does, Mm. and at the very last second, Roy said, this is going to be named in honor of my brother, so thus the Walt Disney World Mm. uh, Resort was born.
1: Yeah, yeah, he was an amazing fella, and always in the background. Now, the term Project Future, um, I know that wasn't the only name they used in their secretive project, but that's where it ended up. Um, how did they end up with Project Future, and what were some of the other um, names?
4: Yeah, I think this project had more code names than a CIA <laughs> it, it really was uh, chock-full. It was funny, as I was doing the research in different archives, all these different terms came up and you know you almost had to have a spreadsheet to keep up with what and but ultimately they all meant the same thing. They used terms such as Disneyland East, the Florida Project, Project Florida, Project X, um, and Project Future. So all of those were used at different stages. I picked Project Future because A, I think it was one of the less known names, but B, in nineteen sixty five in June. A lot of the key players, including Walt and Roy, got together at the Disney headquarters in California and held what was called the Project Future seminar, which mm-hmm. is a week-long event where they evaluated everything about operating this park, from government to intellectual property to the engineering to whatever. All of it was put together, and I was going through some notes, and it was there was a transcript or at least a summary of of the uh, the week-long event, the meeting. And it was called the Project Future seminar. I was like, "Project Future, that sounds good." You know, I, I haven't seen that used before, and, and it's actually uh, very historically accurate.
1: Mm-hmm. My 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 sense has always been that um, you know, just Walt's uh, vision of Epcot um, kind of tied into the name, but I've never known that for sure.
4: Yeah, um, I think that might have something to do with it, but I also the what happened is uh, Project. The future side of it, why they actually picked Project Future. Uh, I've heard some anecdotal stories. I didn't put this in the book because I couldn't really double source it. But a couple of people who were actually real involved then and who are alive now today, I was able to visit with them, said, uh, We just picked Project Future because it had a catchy name and we we're looking to the future. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, well, you know, sometimes the simple <laughs> ways uh, are the way to do it. So,
1: And all of us can speculate, but it's usually something like that. That's right. <laughs> um, in, the, in the book, you explain why they had to take the approach they did and, and why it was secretive. And, you know, I guess um, there's always been this part of me that wonders, uh, did people find it ethical? And obviously there were the legal challenges later. But why, why did Walt have to take that approach? And I'm assuming a lot of it had to do with their experiences in California.
4: Yeah, the secrecy, I think, that Disney undertook with this project has often been misunderstood.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: I think some people uh, would like to view there being some nefarious purposes, that they were trying to hide all this, when in reality, what they're trying to do is make this project viable.
3: Mm-hmm. Here's
4: why. If their name had gotten out early on and people knew that Denny was compiling these 28,000 acres or so, the land prices would have been driven so high that they would not been able to acquire really all that they felt that they needed. Right. And so, you know, nowadays, I think they acted like you know any company would want to act in terms of acquiring land. It was a strategic decision to uh, keep their name secret. And I will say this: one thing I was impressed in my research is while they definitely, you know, engaged in some sleight of hand sometimes, I never found any illegal activity or any other type of activity which would be considered you know, improper from a regulatory or legal side. They just did their best, and they did an incredible good job of, of keeping the media and the other interested gadflies off their trail until just the very end, and they got disclosed just literally a month or two before they were ready to disclose it themselves.
1: And they were certainly vindicated in the end, and I think that's uh, where your book really does a great job of helping us understand what I think, like I said earlier, most people just have this, well, he did it kind of secretly and backhandedly and, you know, was it really ethical? And by the end of it, I was like, my goodness, well, you know, we wouldn't have it if it wasn't for uh, for the steps that they took.
4: That's right. I mean, if, if it had gotten out when it really first Started in you know sixty four or early sixty five, if their identity had gotten out, they very likely wouldn't have gone through with the process. I that's that's what I've concluded. You know, I mean, people have different opinions, but I think if the land prices had been uh, prohibitively high, they would either not build the project or it would have been a significantly smaller scale project, <laughs> something along the lines of the Riverfront Square, which. It would have been a great, great, I mean, I to imagine Walt creating this indoor thing, but you know, it's a five-acre, five-story type project, and, you know, what makes Disney World so fantastic today is, in my opinion, it is vastness. Oh, yeah. Just It's just a, it's a, this blank canvas that it was, and if they had uh, been revealed early on, I think we would have lost that element of it.
1: Oh, yeah. It's it's like, I know you said 27,000 acres,
4: is that right? Well, at some point, I think they got up over 28000 at the peak of it. I mean, so subsequently, they uh, de-annexed property like uh, Celebration and the Crossroads Shopping Center. So right now, it's at one of its lowest points in terms of overall acreage, as mm-hmm. Disney has dispersed or disposed of some of the property, or otherwise, you know, taken out of Reedy Creek. But I think at its peak, it got up either near or above 28000 Okay. Papers.
1: Okay, and th- and that's like about thirty-eight square miles or something like that.
4: Well, you'd ask me to do a little math. About <laughs> Sorry, <that. laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. I think it, it was it was probably up near there.
1: Okay, uh, let's talk a little bit about the timeline and the turn of events in 1966, and and uh, give people that sense you get from your book that this was this is not a one-two year deal. I think it was you said '59' when really they started the research. And uh, then in 66, of course, the untimely death of Walt Disney. Uh, So that dealt the whole project a pretty serious blow. How do you think uh, Walt's untimely death impacted Project Future, and especially the burden that that put on Roy?
4: Yeah, I think Walt's passing, and not just passing, but passing as quickly as he did, uh, probably in mid-1966, he knew something was wrong. he started to go to the doctors and by the fall came around he was feeling pretty bad. But still you know, I don't, no one knew or at least nothing I've seen that it was a terminal illness. It wasn't until November really or October where it became clear something serious was wrong. And so for him to pass away within just a month or two of being diagnosed the challenge for them was that Walt was really painting this canvas, this this entire project in his mind as much as on paper. He was thinking about this throughout nineteen sixty six, or other projects, movies, T V going on, but you just get a sense that this was monopolizing his mental, you know, energies and his just thought process. But a lot of that was not put on paper yet. Mm-hmm. So they almost when they realized that he had a real serious illness, there was a rush to Get the information out of his mind hmm. and put it on paper, so that if he did pass, which unfortunately that happened, that at least they'd have a blueprint to follow of what he envisioned for these twenty-seven thousand acres. Hmm. To a large degree, Marvin Davis and Roy and all these other folks really did a good job in doing that. But even at the end, he was there's a story. He's looking at this The thing. I could tell it's a true story. Uh, he was looking at the ceiling of his room in the uh, hospital and talking to his brother, and it's one of those kind of drop ceilings that's in grids or little squares, and he was and he's imagining Disney World on the ceiling and pointing to different parts of the ceiling and telling his brother, this should be here and there and stuff. And so I think that's you know, one of the real unfortunate things, that if he could have just you know lived another two years or so, I think... The project would have been fundamentally different, which for some people may not be good. But I think it might have had more of the component of a uh, a real working city mm-hmm. than it ultimately did. I, I completely, 100 percent disagree with people who say that the idea that Epcot was was going to be a city was only a sham to convince the legislature. I everything I've seen, everyone I've talked to, who is contemporary, who's there, who literally walked the property wall at times during 1966. Said that you know that was his goal. He was close to guys like James Rouse and others. His goal was to create a real ideal city. That was the next logical step in his creative evolution. Mm-hmm. He just didn't live long enough to to do that. And that's just if he would have lived to be eighty years old, I believe Epcot would have been built. Yeah, like he originally thought
1: that. That is actually probably one of the main premise of this podcast is that. Uh, uh, we believe that the the vision for the future that folks had back, like, say, at the, the World's Fairs and, of course, Walt's vision for Epcot, which was a real city with, as I understood it, about 20,000 or maybe more people living there. That's the uh, Epcot I wish we did see. And, of course, like you say, I love Epcot. It's my favorite park. But uh for people who um aren't aware of it, there's some great websites out there. I know it used to be called Waltopia, I don't know what it's called now, but it gives you all of these um uh um what's the word, the mock ups or the drawings that they had for Epcot, and it's really fantastic.
4: Yeah.
1: Too bad we didn't see <laughs> see that.
4: Yeah, it's um you know it's one of those things where I don't know. You know, I like Epcot like it is, so I don't know if I would have preferred it to be a working city. In some ways, it seems a little bit less interesting to go on a vacation, but at the same time, I'm really um, intrigued by Walt's idea of an ideal city. What he could have pulled off that uh, that to date really hasn't been pulled off. I mean, Celebration and other places are nice, but in terms of just what he can see, that could have been a real game-changer in American society.
1: Do you think Roy himself was um, trying to to go towards Walt's real vision for Epcot, or do you? Or once Walt died, did everyone just say this wasn't practical and too expensive?
4: No, I think, well, I mean, the tricky thing with Roy is, he said gonna, all along they're going to build Magic Kingdom first, and he made it very clear that Magic Kingdom is going to open almost within a week of... Walt's passing in December 1966, a lot of Florida officials and other officials thought that that's the demise of the whole Florida project, whole project future. And Roy sent a lot of the lieutenants out there, a lot of the personnel in Florida out there to tell people, "We are moving forward." And by early 1967, they were meeting with legislators and getting the legislation ready. But I think if um, I think if Roy had lived past, I mean, he He, ironically, passed within just a month or two of the Magic Kingdom opening, the Walt Disney World Resort, premiering in October of 1971. If he had lived longer, you never know. I still think, though, even though he probably would have wanted to fulfill that vision, Roy was getting pretty uh, up there in years, and the fact that Walt wasn't there, I suspect we might have had something a little different than we do now. I think we might have had Uh, Maybe some experimental housing and things like that, but I don't think the Epcot, which Walt envisioned, was ever going to be built without Walt directing its building.
1: Yeah, I think the thing, the 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 drawings that I've seen, the the part about Epcot that looked so cool to me was how they um did the traffic so the the bottom level was where you know you could still drive into epcot but then you would go up these levels and you'd see like the people movers at one level and maybe a, a faster moving um subway or, or i mean like a monorail above that and uh so that those drawings are great um i think it's called it just for any of the listeners who are interested i think it's called the original epcot and it may even have dashes in there, .com, but you should be able to find it doing a search of that or Waltopia. Yeah. Um so um I kind of want to um finish uh on your on your Project Future book by just kind of setting the stage here. Um most of the book covers the um all the complexities and legal issues surrounding Project Future and 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 of course the involvement of the Reedy Creek uh, Improvement District. So um during those years when they were um, in, in those talks and fighting some of those battles, how do, you, do you think that Roy and, and the Walt Disney Company felt Walt's dream was slipping through the cracks?
4: No, I don't... I think... I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I don't think slipping through the cracks. I think that all along Magic Kingdom was a means to an end for Walt. He was not into sequels a whole lot. He was into original things. He was willing to do the Magic Kingdom, which is in some ways a sequel to Disneyland, because he knew from a business perspective that would draw the interest to Central Florida that would then allow his greater interest, Epcot, to have some extra level of viability. And so when when he passed, when, when Walt passed, I think it was basically all attention was let's get this vacation resort open. At that point, honestly, the water parks and the additional theme parks, I don't don't really think Laura spent a lot of time thinking about those because it was such a mammoth effort, right? I mean, down to the morning of the grand opening, putting Sod down at the contemporary resort. It was such a mammoth undertaking that, you know, sometimes when you're so focused on something, it's impossible to think about anything in the future. So... I think that's what happened. Is it? It opened. It was first couple of weeks. It was it looked like it might have been a bomb, but then on right. Thanksgiving it was uh, taking off. And you know, not right around that time, Roy passed away. Mm-hmm. Which you know, losing Walt and then losing Roy after the opening. By then, you know, essentially the, the Disney brothers, which had guided this process, were both gone, and you had some great people, the Don Tatum's and. The other folks involved, you know, well intending, but they weren't one of the Disney brothers, and they hadn't been through what Walt and Roy had been through through the creative journey they'd been on.
3: Oh yeah,
1: yeah, uh, and and uh, they went through a time I know after Roy's death where it was just really unclear as to how the that company was going to be led. Um, Can you, from a personal level, um, uh, taking on a project like this, and just the amount of work and detailed research you did must have been challenging. Were there any uh, huge obstacles that you ran into or challenges writing this book?
4: Well, one of the challenges, and it turned out actually to be a hidden blessing, was the Disney Corporate Archives in California. Used to be open to certain research projects. Right. And when I reached out to them, I had some, knew a lot of people at the company and had a lot of conversations about working with it, but it just became clearer and clearer that it was going to, you know, moving heaven and earth to uh, to get access. So I said, you know what, maybe this is not a bad thing after all. Hmm. Maybe the fact that you know, what's in their access? What's in their uh, archives, excuse me, the official archives? What really Disney thinks is important? But what if I can go and use non Disney archive materials and still tell the story hmm. and find it from a perspective which, not saying they were trying to hide anything, but you know, is not necessarily the perspective that they were sharing? To right. a large degree, it's synced up, but to be able to go to University of Central Florida's archives, look at Buzz Price's papers, uh, meet with some of the people who are still alive, interview guys like Tom DeWolf and and uh, Mr. Smith and others and then go to the Al of uh, Alabama, I'm in Alabama, hmm. the Florida State Archives and go and, and you know almost, you know, breathe in the dust for days at a time being these, you know, old books and papers and, and finding that once I found those materials I was like, you know what? This story will be a more complete story.
1: During the process of writing the book, can you recall any high moments that you really treasure from the whole experience?
4: Uh, Some of the favorite moments were interviewing or just visiting with people like Buzz Price and Tom DeWolf and Governor Claude Kirk and Bob Foster, these folks who were alive are obviously alive now when I was talking to them, mm-hmm. but were alive in the mid-60s and lived through these events and could reflect from their own first-hand personal experience. It's one thing to read an archived document. And those are fascinating, the I mean, documents which were written back then, and in some ways probably more reliable, because, you know, just like any of us, our memories over time, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. books and different things. But talking to these folks and say, oh, yeah, I remember when, you know, Walt and I walked into this room and I was like, I mean, that, that humanizes it. And so the highlight was, is no longer think of Walt as something on a film strip, but as a real human being who was sitting there talking to these folks, directing traffic, directing ideas, and getting a glimpse into that world. is like taking a time machine back to the mid-60s. And I felt by talking to them, I better understood what Disney World was always intended to be. Mm-hmm. That's a great I, experience.
1: I can imagine. I mean, to get these guys—did uh, you talk to them by phone uh, or in person?
4: Some, some by phone, and some, I was fortunate to die in person. I, where Tom Dewolf, who was um, uh, an attorney uh, who Disney used to help acquire some of the land, he still lives in Clermont, Florida, and through some folks I knew at Reedy Creek, they introduced us, and he invited me. I sat in his kitchen, at his kitchen table, with him and a recorder and. We just visited, shoot, we must have been there for an hour, hour and a half, hmm. and just sitting there and visiting with Mr. DeWolf and learning all these things and him saying, oh yeah, I remember when we went over there, or first saw the Dimitri Parcel, which made up a large chunk of Disney World, things like that, or, or met this, and then and this last June, June of 2010, I went back and did a, a month-long series of talks, uh, kind of a book mini-book tour there, And going to a lot of these groups, rotary clubs and things like that, I met a lot of people who came up and said, oh yeah, my dad was on the original construction team or or my mom was uh, friends with the original this and meet all these people and realize that Disney World, we sometimes crystallize into just the two or three or five or so famous people, the Fowlers and the uh, Potters and the Disneys and folks like that. But then to hear about the people who, Maybe we're a layer or two below the surface, but without them, it would simply not have been built
1: hmm. it I didn't get a chance to validate, but it seemed like some of the names you mentioned in there, I had read in like uh, some of the other books, like How to Be Like Walt. And um, what I was always amazed was how some of these guys came in, into the position that they were with Disney World. Uh, just Walt had that keen sense of where somebody might be talented, moving people from one position to another. And I think you know, I'm, I'm thinking some of the guys that you you talked to were, were those people.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I, I talked to those folks, I mean, a variety of the folks, some of, the, some of the gentlemen I mentioned, and as the funny thing I've learned is when I went back in June and spent a long time in Central Florida talking and sharing stories from I was of that Disney World itself, giving a series of talks to probably 20 different groups and the, uh, the public library and stuff. People that came up to me afterwards and. Had additional materials, I was like, "Wow, you know, I could, I, the, the book would have been 500 pages." I knew all these people at the time, <laughs> but you know, at some point, you you have to stop researching and start writing, and stop writing and start publishing. So you know, we did that, and I think all in all, my goal was to write a book that was short enough in length that it was approachable, and you could read it on the flight down to Disney World, or maybe on a long weekend but also had enough detail that people like myself, who kind of like the History Channel or Discovery Channel, kind of the the behind-the-scenes, how it works, would have some anecdotes and other facts in there that you typically wouldn't find in a lot of the books about Disney World these days.
1: Yeah, I thought it was a great read. And like you said, it's something that um, you can get through in a few days if you're an ambitious reader. And uh, so I would highly recommend it. And uh, this is a perfect segue into your next book, which is Four Decades of Magic, and as I saw, it's coming out on March 1st. Is that still the date?
4: Well, no, actually, the good news is, I I don't know when this podcast is going to be published, but the good news is that uh, today, which is February 9th, Mm -hmm. um, the book is now available online. Oh. perspective literally today when you know you are talking i was actually i hit a button that says publish, and it's published now you can go to createspace.com um, and look up four decades of magic or go to i4publishing.com and, and find the link it'll be on amazon.com which is where we sell most of our books probably within a week or so oh. so uh, by this time next week people should be able to go to amazon.com and by four decades of magic, which I wrote the introduction for that. I didn't actually beyond the introduction. I, I was mainly the compiler. But what it is is a series of essays from from leading Disney podcasters and authors and bloggers and you just name it. Some of the just people really involved. A lot of readers would recognize or listeners would recognize. And I asked them, hey, for the 40th anniversary of Disney World, which is you know this October 2010. Um, I mean, 2011. Here we are in 2011 now. And hmm. could you send me a, you know, a, a four or five or six page essay reflecting on something in the last four years that really drew you to Disney? And I didn't know what to expect, and we got the most diverse set of essays. Some of them are, are comical, some of them are serious. I've I read this book now probably, you know, 15 times <laughs> in every process. And each time I've read these essays, whether it's, you know, Lou Mangello's essay about uh, uh, unbuilt Disney resorts or some of, you know, essays or some of these other folks, every time I read something, I'm just like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. Hmm. And uh, it's it's a great collection. I'd like to take credit, but I I really wrote very little. But the guys like Mark Scopa and Deb Deb Coma and stuff like that, just Kevin Yee. I I shouldn't even start naming them because... I, I'll leave out somebody. But they just did an amazing job telling amazing stories and bite sized stories. So you can read a couple, put the book down. And, and I think it, I, I personally um, think it's going to be a real great resource for Disney fans of all stripes.
1: Hmm, I think that was a great idea. And I had no idea some of the other names behind it. So, a uh, big fan of uh, both Lou and uh, Jim. So, that'll be fun to read. Um, It's been a real honor to have you on our second podcast, and we appreciate your time sharing and inspiring others to chase their dreams. Um, Just one more time, how can folks find out how to order both Project Future and Four Decades of Magic?
4: Well, Dean, it's been great to be here, and I'm I'm looking forward to you all and your podcast as you get started, because I think it's a a market niche that has not been filled yet, and uh, I think... Uh, you bringing this podcast along is, is really something I'm going to follow because I I love the angle you're taking. The best way to reach um, or to find about Project Future or Four Decades of Magic or the other Disney books that um, we've published is go to I4 Publishing, which is kind of a play off one of the dummy corporations which Disney set up in Florida, which was the I4 Corporation. Um, obviously. It was alluding to Interstate 4, but the way it's spelled is A-Y-E-F-O-U-R. So go to www.ayefourpublishing.com, i4publishing.com, and you can get all the materials and all the books and see some free previews there.
1: Great. All right. Well, we look forward to uh, reading your new book and uh, appreciate the time. Thanks again, Chad.
4: All right. Thanks, Steve.
1: And finally, we leave you with the segment from the Epcot film presented to the Florida Legislation and the people at large, which describes Walt's city of the future.
5: No city of today will serve as the guide for the city of tomorrow. Epcot will be a planned environment, demonstrating to the world... American communities can accomplish through proper control of planning and design. EPCOT begins with an idea new among cities built since the birth of the automobile. We call it the radio plan. Picture a wheel. Like the spokes of the wheel, the city fans out along a series of radials from a bustling hub at the center of EPCOT. A network of transportation systems radiate from this central hub carrying people to and from the heart of the city. These transportation systems circulate to and through four primary spheres of activity surrounding the central core. First, the area of business and commerce. Next, the high density apartment housing. Then the broad green belt and recreation lands. And finally, the low density, neighborhood, residential streets. Epcot's dynamic urban center will offer the excitement and variety of activities found only in metropolitan cities cultural social business and entertainment among its major features will be a cosmopolitan hotel and convention center towering 30 or more stories shopping areas where stores and whole streets recreate the character and adventure of places around the world theaters for dramatic and musical productions, restaurants, and a variety of nightlife attractions, and a wide range of office buildings, some containing services required by Epcot's residents, but most of them designed especially to suit the local and regional needs of major corporations. But most important, this entire 50 acres of city streets and buildings will be completely enclosed. In this climate-controlled environment, shoppers and theater-goers and people just out for a stroll will enjoy ideal weather conditions, protected day and night from rain, heat and cold, and humidity. Here the pedestrian will be king, free to walk and browse without fear of motorized vehicles. Only electric-powered vehicles will travel above the streets of EPCOT's central city. No city of today will serve as the guide for the city of tomorrow. EPCOT will be a planned environment, demonstrating to the world what American communities can accomplish through proper control of planning and design. EPCOT begins with an idea new among cities, built since the birth of the automobile. We call it the radio plan. Picture a wheel. Like the spokes of the wheel, the city fans out along a series of radials from a bustling hub at the center of EPCOT. A network of transportation systems radiate from this central hub, carrying people to and from the heart of the city. These transportation systems circulate to and through four primary spheres of activity surrounding the central core. First, the area of business and commerce. Next, the high-density apartment housing. Then the broad green belt and recreation lands. And finally, the low-density neighborhood residential streets. Epcot's dynamic urban center will offer the excitement and variety of activities found only in metropolitan cities, cultural, social, business, and entertainment. Among its major features will be a cosmopolitan hotel and convention center, towering 30 or more stories, shopping areas where stores and whole streets recreate the character and adventure of places around the world theaters for dramatic and musical productions, restaurants, and a variety of nightlife attractions, and a wide range of office buildings, some containing services required by Epcot's residents, but most of them designed especially to suit the local and regional needs of major corporations. But most important, this entire 50 acres of city streets and buildings will be completely enclosed. In this climate-controlled environment, shoppers and theater-goers and people just out for a stroll will enjoy ideal weather conditions, protected day and night from rain, heat and cold, and humidity. Here, the pedestrian will be king, free to walk and browse without fear of motorized vehicles. Only electric-powered vehicles will travel above the streets of EPCOT's central city. This towering hotel is the visual center of EPCOT, the shining jewel at the center of the city. It will offer tourists and vacationers not only the most modern guest rooms and convention facilities, but also a seven-acre recreation deck located high above the pedestrian and shopping areas of the city. But hidden from view, directly beneath the hotel, is another kind of vital center, Epcot's transportation lobby. Although out of sight to hotel guests, this transportation terminal will play a key role in the city of tomorrow's ability to meet the needs of both visitor and resident. Two separate but interconnecting transit systems will move people into and out of Epcot in speed, safety, and comfort through this central terminal. Both are electrically powered. The high-speed monorail for rapid transit over longer distances and a concept new to the American city for shorter travel distances, the Wedway People Mover. Automobiles and trucks will not be barred from Epcot. In fact, a vast armada of vehicles will continuously flow through the heart of the community, traveling below the pedestrian level on roadways reserved for specific types of vehicles. Let's look at another view of Epcot's transportation hub and see how traffic flows through the heart of the city on three separate levels. At the bottom of the stack is the truck route, reserved for supply vehicles. Trucks will have easy access to all loading docks and service elevators for the delivery of commercial goods. The middle level is the automobile throughway, exclusively for cars. Adjacent to the roadway are parking areas for the convenience of hotel guests. For the motorist just driving through, no stoplight will ever slow the constant flow of traffic through the center of EPCOT. But automobiles and freeways will not be EPCOT's major way of entering and leaving the city. The transportation heartbeat of EPCOT will be the two electric-powered systems, monorail and wedway, that radiate to and from the transportation lobby. And the key system in this coordinated network will be the Wedway People Mover. The first People Mover installation is already in daily operation at Disneyland. On peak days, it carries nearly 40,000 passengers. The cars you see here are approximately five-eighths scale, considerably smaller than full-size passenger cars would be for city use. Epcot's People Mover is a silent all-electric system that never stops running. These cars continue to move even while passengers are disembarking or stepping aboard. is supplied from a series of motors embedded in the track completely independent of the cars. No single car can ever break down and cause a rush hour traffic jam in Epcot. Because the cars run continuously, there will be no waiting in stations for a Wedway people mover. The next car is always ready. Now let's go back to the transportation lobby and see how the Wedway will travel along one radio between the center of Epcot and a typical residential area. Leaving the transportation lobby, the Wedway trains travel above the downtown streets. Within minutes, the Wedway passes through the first station. Many people who work in the offices and stores of Epcot City Center board the Wedway here for their trip home. Some people leave the Wedway here too. They live in Epcot's high density apartments surrounding the Metropolitan Center. Most passengers who ride the Wedway live beyond the apartments and stay aboard the People Mover as it crosses Epcot's sheltering Greenbelt. Epcot's Greenbelt is more than just a broad expanse of beautiful lawns and walks and trees. Here too are the community's varied recreational facilities, its playgrounds for children its churches, and its schools. Beyond the green belt are Epcot's neighborhood areas of single-family homes. This is one radial neighborhood. Here and throughout the community, residents returning from work or shopping will disembark from the Wedway at stations located conveniently just a few steps from where they live. The homes are located in a wide green area that provides light recreation activities for adults and play areas for children. Circulating through this area are footpaths reserved for pedestrians, electric carts and bicycles. Children going to and from schools and playgrounds will use these paths, always completely safe and separated from the automobile. The resident leaving home in his automobile will drive down a street reserved for motor vehicles then enters a one-way road that circles the city center this road carries the motorist onto the main throughway connecting Epcot with other points in Disney World and with Florida's nearby network of major highways but most Epcot residents will drive their automobiles only on weekend pleasure trips from all over the community residents going to their jobs converge by Wedway on the center city Many work downtown in offices, stores, and shops. But most employees go beyond the city core to their jobs. From the transportation lobby, monorail trains carry employees either to the theme park or to Epcot's 1,000 acre industrial park. At this central station in the industrial complex, passengers disembark from the monorail and again board Wedway cars that radiate to each facility. This industrial complex will provide employment for many people who live in Epcot. But it will mean much more, not only for this community, but also for American industry. Here the Disney staff will work with individual companies to create a showcase of industry at work. In attractive park-like settings, The six million people who visit Disney World each year will look behind the scenes at experimental prototype plants, research and development laboratories, and computer centers for major corporations. So this is Epcot, the heart of Disney World. In other parts of the country, a community the size of this prototype could become part of an entire city complex composed of many such communities, planned and built a few miles apart. In Disney World, about 20,000 people will actually live in Epcot. Their homes will be built in ways that permit ease of change, so that new products may continuously be demonstrated. Their schools will welcome new ideas so that everyone who grows up in Epcot will have skills in pace with today's world. Epcot will be a working community with employment for all. And everyone who lives here will have a responsibility to help keep this community an exciting, living blueprint of the future. And now here again is Walt Disney. That's the starting point for our experimental
2: prototype community of tomorrow. And now, where do we go from these preliminary plans and sketches? Well, a project like this is so vast in scope that no one company alone can make it a reality. But if we can bring together the technical know-how of American industry and the creative imagination of the Disney organization, I'm confident we can create right here in Disney World a showcase to the world of the American free enterprise system. I believe we can build a community that more people will talk about and come to look at than any other area in the world. And with your cooperation, I'm sure this experimental prototype community of tomorrow can influence the future of city living for generations to come. It's an exciting challenge, a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for everyone who participates. Speaking for myself and the entire Disney organization, we're ready to go right now.